There have been so many guests on the podcast that I wish we could have gotten more one-on-one time with. Because when you really get to sit down and have that intimate experience, you learn so much more. And that's why we love our longtime partner, Masterclass. Because where else are you going to get one-on-one time with RuPaul? Teaching you how to be your most authentic self as if among friends. And if you were as fascinated as I was after Natalie Portman joined the show, maybe you wanted to go deeper. And her acting class on Masterclass lets you do just that. With their set of 180-plus world-class instructors, you're in good hands when you decide to set out on your next learning adventure. Plus, if it's not for you, they have a 30-day money-back guarantee. My favorite. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash hard things. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash hard things. Masterclass.com slash hard things. One purchased, one donated. That's the promise of Bombas, whose incredibly comfy socks, tees, and underwear go not only to you when you buy them, but also to people facing homelessness. So when you put on that buttery soft tea or realize you've developed a habit of reaching for Bomba socks, which I do, over every other pair in the drawer, you'll know that someone in need is having that same feeling. Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash hard things and use code hard things for 20% off your first purchase. Dan Levy, I love you. Hi, everybody. Dan, I'm Glennon, and this is. I know who everyone is here. I know who everyone is. What a thrill. You have three massive fans right here. <laughs> Not just of every other thing you've done in Shit's Creek, obviously, but of the movie Good Grief. We loved it so much. Thank you so much. It's so beautiful. We have a daughter who's a musician, okay? She's in high school. And she calls us from the library sometimes freaking out because she's just put out a song and she has to go into the hallway of high school and walk through the hallway while people are listening to her most vulnerable words that Mm. she has put out into the world. Like, here is my heart and I am trying the hardest to do this thing. And she will come home and say, being an artist is so embarrassing. (laughs) I wish I was that evolved in high school, to be perfectly honest. I wish I had that kind of like professional and emotional and creative clarity. That's amazing. Yeah, it's very weird. It's been a very strange time because in a way, like for me, the great joy of all of this is making things. I love Mm -hmm. to make things. I love to build things from the ground up. I love to conceive of ideas and bring them to life. To me, there's no greater thrill creatively than thinking something in your head and literally watching it physically manifest. I remember the very first day I walked onto the sets of Schitt's Creek and it was like, it was the closest I think I've come to walking into a dream Mm. because these places and these details and the feel existed in my head for so long as we were writing it. And then suddenly you walk into these physical places And they are exactly what you had pictured them to be. So it's kind of like, 
it's this wonderful process. And then you have to put it out into the world. And then you have to put it out to be criticized and written about and all of these things that that are very necessary and important parts of the job, but certainly not the parts that I love. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm with you, Dan. I am with Less you. walking into a dream. Less. A little less walking into a dream, but for some people it is. I mean, people who love doing press and people who see press as kind of, the, you know, a, an evolution of their career, great. Mm. I'm thrilled for you. For me, the fun kind of stops. Not that I'm yes. not enjoying myself, but it is a very different thing. And I think as a socially anxious person, now you're actually having to to physically interact with people. It's a whole thing, especially something that's like really personal, mm-hmm. which is why I'm talking so much right now. It's so good. I, okay. Can we just put a pin in there and pod squad, think about the power of art and imagination. Okay, because what Dan is saying is that Dan thinks of a world, a dream world, and then creates it and puts it in front of us. The reason why that's revolutionary, Abby and I, while watching Schitt's Creek 47,000 times, Mm -hmm. oh, (laughs) what's missing from this show? Why does it feel so freaking safe and beautiful? And (sighs) oh, there's no homophobia Mm -hmm. in this world. Wait, what? But we're supposed to only have one storyline. We're like, we fight against the homophobia the whole time. (laughs) That's our arc, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't have any. Did I miss it? Was that a deliberate decision? Yeah, it was. Um, And no, we didn't. In fact, the only episode where I think we ever even flirted with the idea of homophobia was in Patrick's coming out episode where we were, I was interpreting that. He was interpreting it as a potential blockage between himself and his parents. But in the end, what was the great sort of hook of that episode was we took all the tropes of a coming out episode, which was like, will they accept me? Will they do this? Will they do that? Misreading their sort of awkwardness and hesitation around finding out that their son was gay, which was an accident that I ended up getting to them before he could tell them. But the whole twist of that was that the tension that existed was because they themselves felt like they had done something wrong that he couldn't come to them earlier. Mm. And that there was any hesitation in the first place. So we got to play on the stereotypical sort of coming out to your parents thing, except that tension was completely reversed. And Mm -hmm. that to me was such an indication of of what we wanted to say with the show, which was just, if you are going to be phobic or intolerant of of anything, turn the channel, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So beautiful. And it really is such a powerful, amazing thing about art because does it reflect the world or is the world going to reflect that? Well, honestly, I mean, that that really was our philosophy. It started very early on with the show. I think when you write about a small town, so often small town people and small town life get caricatured as being mm-hmm. silly or less smart than the sort of cosmopolitan people that they're interacting with. And for us, we wanted to kind of celebrate small town culture and mm-hmm. make the family the butt of the joke. And in doing that, you had to make the townspeople smarter and more emotionally and socially evolved than the family coming to the town. So in a way, the whole philosophy of the show wrote itself 
when we decided that this town was going to be a safe haven for these people. And then it was just an inevitability that you remove any kind of negative tension from the town and the town's people. And that was something I don't even think we thought of as being revolutionary at the time. It was just, what if this town was a better place than we could ever imagine? What if this town was a place that allowed our family to feel free and safe enough to understand ourselves in ways that we had never understood ourselves in the big city. And with that came this general idea of acceptance across the board. It was an amazing thing, but at the time it wasn't conscious. It was just like, oh, well, this seems sweet. This seems like (laughs) I would like that. But sometimes that's all it takes is just a desire to kind of write something that is a sweeter world than the one we, we live in now and hope that people catch up. Oh, God. So listen, you just write down, this seems sweet. And that is what eventually turns into a revolution. This seems sweet. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Like in our case, I'd like to say it was like a far more cerebral intellectual thing, but it was just impulse. Mm. What was the impulse to next focus on grief? Mm. We have so many questions. Mm. We are both in different griefy parts of our life. Mm. Why was this the next thing for you? Well, I didn't really know at the time after finishing the show that what I explored next was going to be about grief, but I did know that it was going to be, whether it was a television show or a film, at the time I didn't even know I was going to make a movie. I thought it might've been a TV show, Mm -hmm. but I knew that I wanted it to center around contemporary adult friendships. Because for me, my friendships are the most valuable sort of parts of my life outside of my family. And I think for a lot of members of the queer community, friendships oftentimes mean more than family if if mm-hmm. you don't have family. And yet in movies, movies more so than TV, the friendship storyline never gets to be the central focus. Mm-hmm. Friends in movies often act as like comedic foils They help encourage the protagonist on their quest for love. And they're often the funniest, most interesting characters in the movie. And yet we know Mm -hmm. nothing about them. And so I wanted to tell a story about friendship as it pertains to me as I get older in my life and, and my friendships like mean more and more. And the texture and the sort of dimensionality of friendships end up becoming weightier and weightier, the more our lives take on shape and weight. Mm -hmm. And then over the pandemic, I lost my grandmother and was really kind of for the first time. I I mean, I've been lucky enough to not have a lot of loss in my life. And so this was the big one that happened Mm -hmm. most recently to me. And I was really grappling with how to feel Mm -hmm. because the pandemic had kind of laid this foundational layer of grief in all of us. To then have a personal loss on top of that, I just found myself very confused as to whether I was feeling enough for my grandmother Mm -hmm. because the foundation layer of grief was there to begin with. Mm -hmm. So to kind of pluck a strand that was very personal to me out of this already overwhelming state of, of grief became this conversation that I was having with myself about, am I feeling what I need to feel? My body isn't reacting in the way that I thought it would or the way that movies had told me that it should. So what does it mean? 
And am I failing at it? And that conversation around, (laughs) are you doing the right thing? Is there a right way to do it? Became the, the sort of the seedling for this film. And I thought, well, what an amazing way to, to tell a story about friendship using grief as the catalyst for these friends to kind of understand their lives better and support each other and break down and then come back together. So that was it. it, it oftentimes it just comes down to like a question and the need to explore it. Mm-hmm. So what are your conclusions about grief? <laughs> like, for example... Have you figured out, first of all, how did it feel in your body that you were like, is it supposed to feel this way? I mean, what's the line from the movie? It feels like swimming in clothes and I can't take them off. That's right. (gasps) What were you feeling that you were thinking, is this what grief's supposed to feel like? Like, how did it feel to you? I wasn't feeling as much Uh, as I thought. I wasn't crying as much as I thought. I was questioning whether I had lost a part of my sensitivity. I was wondering whether, also at the time, it was like coinciding with the success of my TV show. And I'm so Mm -hmm. sensitive to like not losing myself to an industry that can swallow you whole. So Mm -hmm. on top of it, I was also asking questions of like, well, have I been just so distracted by all these sort of wonderful things that had been happening that I wasn't clear enough to like feel the things that I like what it was, I was running through the gamut of why I wasn't feeling what I was feeling. Yeah. And then it came to me later. It hit me really two months later. It was snowing. I was home in Toronto taking my dog for a walk. And it was one of those like beautiful nights where the snowflakes are huge and they're falling at like a very slow cinematic pace. <laughs> and <laughs> And I was sort of having such a struggle and the world was having such a struggle, but the visual, the beauty of the earth continuing despite my struggle, despite anything else, had I had this very strange philosophical like cry Mm. in the snow because life moves on Mm. and you can spend your time worrying about whether you're doing something right or wrong, or you can just feel. Mm. You know, and that I think was what cracked open this whole thing. And it's interesting because the New York Times wrote about the film in a really beautiful way, funnily enough, in a way that made it easier for me to communicate, which was, I'm summarizing, but they said, you know, the film is not about, and by film, I mean, you know, it it pertains to grief. It's not about resolution. Mm -mm. It's about loving your way through it. And sometimes it takes someone else's eyes on something you've done to kind of crystallize what you wanted to say. Mm-hmm. And that to me, I think was the big takeaway that I had in, in like the catharsis of making the movie. And mm-hmm. ultimately I think it resulted in that line that Celia Imry delivers toward the end of the movie, which is that to avoid sadness is to also avoid love. Yeah. And that I think is the big takeaway. And it's amazing when you write because sometimes those words catch, catch you off guard. I lost my dog five days before I started writing the script. And he was my shadow. I've, you know, we had just spent our little like 10 years together. And I don't know if I could have written the script in the way that I did had I not had that additional level of 
mm. exposure to to a huge loss. So sometimes, I don't know, you got to turn to art if you can to try and figure it out. Yeah. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. It's true. You don't go somewhere new and exotic just to be there. You go to do things, be it a historical walking tour, zip lining through the trees, or guided tours through museums. Like the hassle-free self-guided audio tour our family took through Versailles. If you're planning a trip and really want to make the most out of your time, I recommend you check out Viator. They have over 300,000 bookable experiences from simple tours to extreme adventures. And there's something for everyone in over 190 countries. Thrill rides, spooky ghost tours, secret food guides, exploration off the beaten path. It's all there, along with millions of real traveler reviews, 24-7 customer service, various payment options, and flexibility and support with free cancellation. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. One of life's most prevalent paradoxes that I often note is a closet full of clothes, but nothing to wear. But people who say that about their closet haven't shopped at Quince. I'll put my money on that. Quince is my, and soon to be your, go-to for high-quality yet affordable luxury essentials from organic cotton to washable silk and sparkling jewelry. I am currently obsessed with all of their belt bags. Do you know this? They're the kind of bags that you can sling over the front of you, the kind that are actually like attached to a belt around your waist. And there's even like nylon ones that I've bought. They are under 30 bucks and they're really good for active wear and also hands-free. This is what I'm talking about. The new bag of the future is hands-free and they are super inexpensive at Quince. Love them. Check them out. The best part is Quince works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, which not only helps us trust the quality and origin of the pieces, but also cuts out unnecessary extra costs and allows us to bask in the savings. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash hard things for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash hard things to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash hard things. I'm trying to figure out the the connection between, so I'm in another realm of recovery right now from all the things. Mm -hmm. And I had like a little relapse over Christmas and I was like, so confused about it because I felt like I was doing really well. And I met with my therapist recently and she was trying to talk me through what had happened right before. And the wild thing is that if there is something to be very sad about, if I don't allow myself space to feel sad about it, I relapse. It's a direct connection all the time. 
And I keep saying to my therapist, okay, so then how do I do it right? Like, what am I supposed to do? And she just keeps saying, I don't know. You just have to make space to feel it. But don't you think that that's so interesting? Because Dan, I would say, I get afraid that I'm not feeling stuff enough. Like I'm like a robot Mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. I feel like, oh my God, am I not? I mean, there is something that's just space. It's just giving yourself space. Because do you ever find yourself running to art too fast? Ooh, that's good. I'm like, oh, it's okay. I'll just write a paragraph. I'll just, I'll make a poem. Is there a too fast? You know, like that night taking my dog for a walk, I came back home and I wrote this like long stream of consciousness attempt at articulating the feeling that I had. And I still can't, I can't articulate it properly. People at home Mm -hmm. listening to this are like, I don't understand snow. You're crying. What's going on? I don't really get it either, but there was some like deeply sort of meaningful confrontation that I had in that moment. And I wrote it down, not for anything other than to try to make sense of it and document Mm -hmm. it. Because if I ever needed to go back, it's there. If I ever needed to tap into like an attempt at trying to continue to clarify that feeling, it's there. I don't think... Oftentimes when I do try to go straight into writing something or making something, it fails Mm -hmm. because it's impulsive and it's coming from a place that is slightly more surface and everything that has ever worked for me has come from a very guttural emotional place Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it is Mm -hmm. that if you don't have a, a real bedrock of emotion thrusting your story forward, it runs out of steam really fast. Hmm. Yeah. And because it's too tidy. What I loved about your movie is that it kind of weirdly (laughs) tracked my own grief journey over my own marriage. I grieved my marriage when I thought that I had lost my marriage because my husband had chosen his job over me. And then several months into clearing out the home we shared together, I received a Christmas gift similar to the Christmas card. And I won't spoil your movie, but, and it was a baby's first Christmas ornament, which was (laughs) for my husband and his (gasps) then uh, baby. So I realized that what I was grieving was not what I thought I was grieving. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And never with the, and no contact. So no, no ability to resolve, no ability to even understand if the story now that I thought I was grieving was the actual story or, and so for me, it just, I really Oh, wow. That you. did hit close to home. Holy. Yes. Yes. And you don't see enough stories like the story that you told. And I thank you for that because I think that like when you're saying rushing too quickly to write or rushing to, it's like, we're like, oh, I see what the story is. Okay. Let me make sense of it. Let me make sense of it. But you can't really ever make full sense of grief. Mm -hmm. It is always ambiguous. It is Mm -hmm. always complicated. And what story are you grieving? And are you grieving the one you experienced or the one the world is telling you happened to you. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's very complicated. And I love how messy the story was. And I think it really dovetails with people's lived experience more than 
the kind of tropes we usually get that are way too tidy. I mean, I'm sorry to hear that story, but I'm glad that it it spoke to you in that way, which I think like, as you were talking, I'm like, well, this all, I mean, it makes sense because mm-hmm. the cycle of our emotions takes time. So yeah. if we were to experience something and then go straight into writing about it, are we writing about the full experience considering the experience itself can't really be told until time has passed? If you had written about your divorce when it happened, think about what you'd be missing out on Mm. had you Mm. not waited. And this whole other element, this whole other dimension and level of complexity to your relationship to your husband would have gone missing from the story. And then we're constantly trying to figure out who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, who was righted, who was wronged. And so even deciding what point in the timeline you decide to like pick up your stake and say, I'm telling it from here. That's just all about our desire to want to show that we were aggrieved or show that someone else was good when really everyone is just a mess of good and bad on every side of it. Like that part in the story when you're like, what I would give to have that fight with him. I'm mad, Mm. but even more than I'm mad, I miss the ability to be mad at him. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's, you have to almost scratch deeper than you want to get to the truth. You know, Mm, it's like our, our head, our brains give us the easy answer. And then it's like, if you stuck around for like that much longer and asked one more question, would you get to something that's maybe more painful, but ultimately the truth? Yeah, I think that that's what grief is. And it's why it hurts so much is because it it's truth thrown in your face, whether you want it or not. Mm. And my therapist has been talking to me a lot about it. I've, I lost my older brother and she said this beautiful thing and I'll never forget it. She said, now, of course, this is horrific and and tragic and you're so sad and upset. And it's also this portal. There's like this portal that opens up over a period of time now for you that will eventually close over time. And I think it's like, especially with death, grieving somebody who's gone now, it's like this weird interaction with this truth of life that we all walk around ignoring almost every moment of our lives, right? (laughs) And we're like then confronted with it. And it's like, look at me. And what are you going to do about this knowing? And that's what I've been really obsessed with over the last couple of weeks. Like, oh, okay. Keep this portal open as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Because being as close to this truth, I think it speaks to what you just said, Dan. Like, it just gets you down into the deeper questions that gets to more of the truth of why we're all here. You guys are all storytellers. You're trying to tell the truth. And Mm -hmm. it must be so impossible to say... Yeah, that movie's done. That book is done. Because did we actually get to the truth? I don't know. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. I think just on on that point, it's like, it's also the only time, almost on a science fiction level, which I think does our brain in, where you Mm -hmm. think, I loved this person so much. My dog was with me every single day. I came home. He was no longer there. When on earth do we think about the removal of people 
and things that we, and, and animals, and you know, where do they go? Where, where do you go? Where do Why they are go? you not here? What is happening? Oh my God. That's what she, Dan, she keeps like, we'll be in bed and she'll be like, where did he go? Where did you go? And there are moments where you're like, can I come with? Like, where are yeah. you? Yeah. 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 And it has nothing to do with not wanting to be on earth. But I did find myself, when you have a dog, in, in my case, I don't have a partner. But I had someone that I loved in my home every day. And when they go away, when these loved ones that are so close to us that we've spent our, like, in, in your case, your whole life with, where do you go? Mm-hmm. And I would love to come with you. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when things are tough on this weird planet that we're slowly destroying. Like, where are you? And is it better? Yeah. Yes. Is it better? Yep. I keep thinking, well, because I've always had kind of an outsized fear of death. Mm -hmm. And I've talked a lot about that with my therapist. And it's like, I'm not actually afraid of that world. I'm more like, what is it? Like, (laughs) what is it? And and I think about before I have consciousness, and I think that I was fine. (laughs) Like the before me time. I, I was fine. Yeah. And now I, like I try to attribute that to the, that must be what it's like in the aftertime too. I don't know. It also, it, like, I'm not a very religious person. Same. And I don't know if I believe in ghosts. Like, I don't even know if I believe in these things. And then something like that happens. And I'm asking, where did you go? There are people out there that would be like, nowhere. Like they're done. They have stopped. And I don't know. And, and I, I have been that person who's been the pragmatist and yet in the moment of like, does it make any sense? My raw truth in my home, I'm asking, where did you go? So that has to show that we have faith in something. That's right. I don't know what it is. Are we saying that where did the thing go? Or are we saying like between you and me, there was so much, there were universes of love and energy and connection. And so yeah. Even if you stopped, energy cannot be created or destroyed. Like that exists. So is it like where does where did it go? All of that go? Like it does your head in. Yeah. But it's also completely illuminating. Totally. And I just told Glennon the other day, I was like, I think I want to talk to a medium and just see what's up. <laughs> no, the faith we have gotten in the last two weeks is like, through the roof. We are suddenly extreme. What's a portal? I feel like the portal is open and I'm taking all advantage of mm-hmm. trying to figure out what the fuck is going on over there. It's a beautiful place to be in mystery, right? Yeah. We'll forget it again. We'll forget the mystery. We'll be back into the minutia of pretending that we know things. When grief comes, whatever the hell it is, I have a tendency to like go to my head. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that can be like, writing for me. It's like, oh no, I can fix this. I can, if I can make this mean something for for myself or for anyone else, it's fixed. It's fixed. It's fixed. And then I'm talking a lot and I'm in my head. And then there's this part where I can get to every once in a while, only recently, where the only words I have are like a kindergartner. I'm like, (laughs) I'm so sad. And it's just this murky. And I think like all the control of grief is in our brain. And then when we like sink down and it's in our body, that's like where the processing happens. Like I can't process. But isn't that ultimately like, it's not a regression, it's a distillation. Yes. Because if you think about kindergarten kids, they don't have the vocabulary 
to say anything other than exactly what they're feeling. So for me, like in this wonderful therapy session that we're all having right now, (laughs) it feels like a true distillation of your feelings. And sometimes the simplicity of it can catch us off guard because it's not a book and it's not a person's TED talk and it's not anything. It's just the simplicity of a feeling. And that I think is actually what great writing is, is essentially simplifying things to a point where you're using like words that, only words that help. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's really good. Only yeah. Only words that help. I love all the different kinds of grief mm-hmm. in the movie. All the different kinds of grief. Because, you know, I was thinking when when you lose a person who's a partner or, or a dog, mm-hmm. where did it go? You're talking about the person or the dog in the relationship, but you're also talking about your imagined future. Mm-hmm. Like oh. what's gone is your entire plan for your entire life. Yeah. That's a weird ass thing. That's part of that grief that we don't identify. It's not just the loss of the person. It's the entire loss of my entire plan. Mm-hmm. And then when you have the betrayal grief, it's your loss of your past. Yeah. Yes. Oh. And future. And your story. And yes. future. Mm. It was, uh, for me, it was like, it's centered around friendship, but it was also important to tell kind of like a little prince journey of somebody who walks through this movie realizing that everyone that he meets, it's revealed that they're grieving something, big yes. and small. And ultimately, that is one of the takeaways as well, which is that oftentimes grief can feel like this incredibly isolated experience because it's hitting you and you leave your house and you look around and people are in the grocery store and kids are laughing and things people are carrying on and you are in grief, you're in pain. You are, oftentimes it's like inescapable, insufferable, all-consuming pain. Mm -hmm. And when people around you are not experiencing that, it can send you into an even greater state of isolation because you think no one understands. And yet, I think what I wanted to explore through the movie is that everybody is grieving something. Everybody in the room that you're in is grieving something. Everybody in the grocery store that you're shopping at is grieving something if you were to scratch the surface of their lives. Mm -hmm. And there's community in that if we can just be more open about it. But there seems to be this desire. I don't know whether it's like a human natural thing to just take it in. And maybe it's because a lot of times what I've realized with friends that I've had to navigate is that I see outreach. When I call my friends and tell them I have a problem, I see it as an act of love. Mm. Because it means that I'm close enough to you to come to you with this. I think a lot of people see outreach to their friends and their family as a burden. Mm-hmm. And it's not. I mean, it is if you become the friend that's constantly calling with a problem and not <laughs> listening to anyone else. <laughs> yes. But I think honesty and friendship is the greatest act of love. Mm-hmm. You should never be in a place where you can't feel like you can speak to your friends. Mm-hmm. That's right. But we have no lessons for it. And one of the things I love about this conversation in the movie is look at these friends struggling to communicate with each other mm-hmm. like we only see people in romantic relationships struggling yes. to communicate. Yeah. We need, look how many books, how many shows, how many what industri- entire industries based on 
romantic couples learning to communicate with each other when really our friends are the ones we stay with through the, all the ups and downs and we don't value bettering that communication or care with each other. And we don't value that struggle as much because it's hard. It's just as hard to talk to your friend about your struggles as it is. It is. It's tricky. I think a lot of people would say it would be harder to talk to their friends. Mm-hmm. And yet yeah. that kind of investment is necessary in the longevity of a friendship. Yeah. And so it's important to be truthful with your friends and it's important to speak about the hard truths with them. And that's what this movie is about is like, Mm -hmm. as I got older, your twenties, like it's great. You're having fun. You don't need (laughs) the same things from your friends that you need as you get into your thirties, forties, fifties, sixties onwards. The more that your life takes shape and the higher the stakes that you feel in, in your own life, the more you kind of have to open up to your friends and the deeper your friendships have to be because we're no longer in our 20s, you know? Like, we're still having fun, hopefully. Mm-hmm. But it's not that kind of blissful unawareness. It's no. a deeper sense of awareness of ourselves and, and each other and what we need from each other in order to move through this life in community that makes us feel protected and those hard conversations with friends, we should be treating friendships the same way we're treating relationships. Give it the same care, give it the same respect, give it the same love. Because I think somewhere along the line, someone has said friendships don't mean as much as relationships. And I just disagree. Mm -hmm. Totally. And it would actually probably take so much pressure off of those relationships, marriages, Oh, absolutely. I do think it's like impossible for one person to take on the soul goodness. And if happiness. it were possible, we would have done it. Yeah. That's <laughs> we <true>. have tried. <laughs> yeah. We're the tried and true lesbians. <laughs> All right, everybody. Good news, bad news. Daylight savings time is starting up again. That means less sleep, but more light, more daylight for all of us. But when you're working hour after hour looking for the next great member of your team, there isn't enough daylight in the day for you to find that perfect candidate. That's why you should let ZipRecruiter do it for you for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash we can. Yes, ZipRecruiter works tirelessly to find qualified candidates for you. Next time you've got a pile of resumes to sift through, think about the fact that ZipRecruiter can scan thousands with their smart technology to get you the shortlist you're looking for and save some daylight for something more fun than that. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash we can. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash we can. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The holiday season may be at its end. Thank you, baby Jesus. But the opportunities for giving amazing life-changing gifts have just begun. And yes, diapers are a life-changing gift. Imagine your first-time parent struggling with time management and financial burdens. Don't really have to imagine. I remember it directly. And all the challenges of your first child. And then you get a huge shipment of diapers funded by all your family and friends. 
That's a good feeling. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's exactly what Pampers is doing with their diaper stash. I love this so much. It's an online diaper fund. So you can contribute to a diaper stockpile and help ensure it never runs out. And one of the most difficult things about buying diapers for others is making sure that you guess the right fits and sizes. And with Pampers Diaper Fund, all that guesswork goes away. So if there's a new parent or expecting parent in your life, you will be making their lives a lot easier and showing them how many people are excited for their huge milestone. Organizing a diaper stash is easy. Go to diaperstash.pampers.com to set up a fund and give the ultimate group gift. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have trees available to grow inside your home from lemon to avocado and from olive to fig on top of the wide variety of house plants available. Plus, Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. What's better than a green, beautiful plant in your house? Right now, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off when using the code hard things at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code hard things at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code hard things. Offer is valid for a limited time. Tell them we sent you. I love that Thomas's Oh, Thomas. Quote when he says, yes, we're all a mess but we need to try harder for each other. Oh, that was good. Tell Mm -hmm. me, there's this idea that with our friends, we can just all be the hot messes that we are all the time. And Mm -hmm. that's somehow the the benchmark of real friendship is you can be just as fucked up as you can possibly be (laughs) around each other. And yet, it seems to me what you're saying there is like, do we not want to also not just save our worst for the people that we love who are our friends. Tell me more about that. I think sometimes the people we have closest to us, we excuse the most Mm -hmm. in ways that we wouldn't excuse other people because we love them. And we've come to just accept that that's who they are. The like hot mess life of the party friend. I mean, Ruth Negga is such an unbelievable actress Ugh, and, so good. and just brought such a weight to that character. And that is a relationship that I think a lot of us have with our friends where you just excuse someone, write them off as being like, well, that's just who they are. And they drink too much and they get themselves into trouble, but it's funny and they're laughing. So I should laugh. Yeah. But you know, there's something going on deeper, but because you're so close to them, you don't see it in the way that someone walking in off the street would see it. Mm -hmm. And that's where these reality checks and our friendships have to happen. Because if you get too at ease with your friendships in terms of excusing bad behavior, are you really helping them? Is that Mm -hmm. really friendship? If you're not willing to have the harder conversations and saying like, you know, I love you dearly, but like, is everything okay? 
because I've been mm-hmm. noticing that yeah. there's some codependency. There's some there's some issues. Um, in the case of the movie, it's it was substance abuse, which I didn't want to hit an audience over the head with. I wanted it to feel very natural and subtle. But yeah, we just have to have those conversations. And I think you know everyone has those friends that I think we look at and think, should I say something? Ooh, yikes. Should I not? Yeah. And we choose either to or we choose to ignore, but it really comes down to kind of the love. Yeah. And the desire to have something more meaningful evolve over time. Mm-hmm. That's good. And what I love about her is that it wasn't heavy-handed about the substance. Like, that's not what I took from her. I no. took from her, she, the substance was just her dealing with her own Grief, yeah. which was, I'm too scared to show up for my life. Like, I'm so scared of intimacy that I'm going to not do this. I'm going to miss everything. And I feel like that hit home for me. And grief can look like the life of the party. Yeah. yeah. Grief can look like the life of the party. That person is scared shitless. Grief can look like Thomas and, and be steady, but be like, my grief is I'm never chosen. hmm mm. I'm never the chosen one, right? Like steadiness can be a grief. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people in the movie are making references to whether or not various people have their shit together. Mm. <laughs> what does it mean mm-hmm. for someone to have their shit together? You know, I don't know if anyone does. And I, I actually <laughs> don't even know if that's a helpful barometer to hold up to yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels like someone along the way, it almost feels like a 90s author wrote a book called Do You Have Your Shit <laughs> your Together? Shit together. And Who everyone subscribed cheese? to it. And <laughs> since then, we've all been questioning whether we have our shit together. And it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know if that equation works anymore. Yeah. The same people who have, have balance. Are they those, are those the people? Yeah, or I mean, it's it is because essentially it's one of those catchphrases that feels good, but is very thin in its meaning. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I also I don't like being pressured or shamed into like anything. Yeah, yeah, you know. So mm-hmm. I think the exploration of like, does anyone actually have their shit together? Which is what was explored toward the end of the movie. The reality is that I don't think anyone does. How boring no. would your life be if you had your shit together? Mm-mm. What does that mean? Mm-mm. It means you'd have, what, what everything's in order and every relationship you have is high functioning and perfect and your relationship with your family and friends is is A plus and you have a lovely life and a house and a thing. It's like, well, how boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know, That's I think we control. almost need to have some roughness in our life to to keep things exciting and to keep us curious. It's good. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody knows know what, what they're doing. What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> I've had that conversation so much these days. What are we doing? What are we doing? Are we doing? Nobody knows. And no, I think the more no, we talk about it, yeah. the more comfortable we'll be because we look at these people who we think know what they're doing. And I don't think they do. I don't either. Sometimes it's just a fluke and it works and you keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's so comforting or terrifying that no one knows what they're doing. It yeah. is like both things for me. It's so liberating. Like, look, no one knows what they're doing. Yeah. Or is it, it just like scares the bejesus out of full me. chaos? 
listen, that's why it's good to have these conversations. We just ask questions and they don't necessarily have to have answers. No, but there is something beautiful that you touch when this, whatever this word we're saying, it's just a word, grief, it's just a word, whatever it stands for, which is we get reminded of something or something disappears from our life that we thought would be there forever. And then we get reminded and we're just touching like a huge ocean of remembering that is always there. Ugh. And other people have different entry points to that. Like yeah. every character in the movie or every person on this call has different entry points this year for their touching of the grief ocean. But is it really just a remembering of what is true and real and is so freaking sad and scary and scary yeah. because the truth of things is we're all going to lose each other. Yeah. And it sounds horrible, but it's actually the thing that makes us able to live with beauty. Like the snow thing. I get that completely. Like in the face of this Titanic experience we are all having on this earth, <laughs> <laughs> this snowstorm, really? <gasps> it was beautiful. Yeah. Beauty. And it was out of my control. It was something the earth did. <laughs> yeah. The earth that we're slowly tearing to shit still <laughs> produces beauty in spite of it all. And then there's me sobbing in the snow with my dog, like months before he died. It was the whole visual oh. is so gorgeous and meaningful. And sometimes it's protect the earth, I guess, is a big takeaway as well. <laughs> Do you sometimes need the beauty juxtaposed to feel the sadness? Because I only can. Somebody dies, I'm like this for two weeks. And then I watch a musical mm -hmm. that has somebody in it and it's mm -hmm. hysterics. Like I need to see the beauty of the thing juxtaposed next against the sadness. Well, for the movie, I think that's why I, I made a very sort of conscious choice to have the aesthetic of the film be really Ugh. elevated Ugh. and like sumptuous Ugh. and beautiful because it only helped to exemplify the sense of isolation. Yeah. In my character's sort of world, he married a very successful man who gave him a beautiful life. They had a beautiful home. His success afforded a beautiful sort of adventure through Europe. And yet, what does that mean? And it's there when you need it. In a way, it was to show the isolation, but also to comfort the audience watching the movie. Yes. Because I never wanted it to feel too inescapably heavy. So if you have like a beautiful living room and you're mm -hmm. having a really heavy conversation, at least from an audience's perspective, there is that softness to the experience of watching it. Dan, that's why we can do your things. That's why we can listen to your hard conversations. It's because you're always wearing the coziest sweaters. Lots of good sweaters. <laughs> And it feels like we're going to be okay. Yeah. Like we're wrapped in coziness while we have this challenging conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I have a huge level of safety whenever I watch your stuff. Me too. Like I just know that I'm safe. Mm -hmm. And I've never had that conscious thought before mm -hmm. watching anybody else. That's so kind. That mm -hmm. I think is like the greatest compliment you could ever get. I don't know. I think you really have to think about your audience. You obviously have to shut them out when you're making something, but then when you're putting it all together, I think understanding how the audience could perceive something and knowing when to give them a breath, knowing when to, I mean, that's why there's humor throughout this film as well, because not only is that life, 
but it's also opportunities for the audience to crack. Yes. <laughs> it's life. Sometimes you laugh at the most inopportune times because you have to. Mm-hmm. Because laughter is, I think, one of our greatest coping mechanisms. It's why it happens sometimes without our even knowing it. Because it's a way of letting the tension out. So it was important through all of this to find those little moments of humor and lightness to alleviate the tension and the weight of it all. Because it's life. You know, you never, it's never just serious all the way through. Yeah. Sister, do you have any final questions for Dan before we let him go make more beautiful things? No, just thank you for making a complicated, beautiful show. Thank you for always telling queer stories as queer stories without all the extra baggage that the world puts on it. And thank you for being who you are. I love this podcast so much. So it's such Mm. a thrill to be here and chat with you all. Always tell us everything you're doing. We will support every single case. <laughs> I absolutely will. I will be here more Listen. often than not in that case. <laughs> Dude, please. Well, I'll find any Dan opportunity will be back to come here back. next Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. We love you. We love you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. This was such a great chat. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Pod Squad. Bye. Bye. If this podcast means something to you, it would mean so much to us if you'd be willing to take 30 seconds to do these three things. First, can you please follow or subscribe to We Can Do Hard Things? Following the pod helps you because you'll never miss an episode and it helps us because you'll never miss an episode. To do this, just go to the We Can Do Hard Things show page on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and then just tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click on follow. This is the most important thing for the pod. While you're there, if you'd be willing to give us a five-star rating and review and share an episode you loved with a friend, we would be so grateful. We appreciate you very much. We Can Do Hard Things is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. I give you Tish Melton and Brandy Carlisle. I walked through fire, I came out the other side. I chased desire, I made sure I got what's mine. I continue to
was far 